Hello and welcome to SAE Tomorrow Today. I'm your host, Grayson Brulte. On today's episode, we're absolutely honored to be joined by Tarek Bolat, co-founder and CEO of GPR. On today's episode, Tarek and I discuss the benefits and use cases of ground positioning radar. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the podcast, Tarek. Hey, Grayson. Really excited to be here with you. I'm really excited to have you here because I've been following GPR going back to the early MIT days. And for the record, radar is cool. So I'm really looking forward <laughs> to diving into this conversation. As I mentioned, the technology behind GPR was developed at MIT's Lincoln Laboratories and spun out as a company in 2017. Could you talk about the early days of the technology's development, please? Yeah, absolutely. So it was, as you mentioned, started under the auspices of MIT Lincoln Laboratory, a federally funded U.S. military R&D facility that's administered by MIT. Uh, And so my co-founder and our CTO, Byron Stanley, led the program there that really developed the initial prototype that proved that it was indeed possible to scan the subsurface with a specific type of radar and uh, and then use that set of scans as a map, similar as you would with a LiDAR or a camera based map to do positioning of a vehicle very, very precisely. And we'll talk about why it's so advantageous to do that. But it was originally to automate military vehicles. It was so successful in that context that it had generated um, interest from automakers uh, and some of the leading AV players at the time. This is still in the early days of AV. Uh, With the caveat that we're still in the early days of AV, this was the early days of the the early days. Uh, You know, the first uh, first pitch of the first inning. Um, And so that's uh, that's really when this got started. When the technology was being developed, it had successful applications with the military. Was it deployed in theater? I believe it was uh, deployed for testing in Afghanistan. And uh, I believe that there was some some information published on that assessment as well. To me, you can go into, into theater. There's a lot of technologies that the military put into theater that were eventually later commercialized. One of those great examples is GPS. And we've seen the profound positive effect on the military. But then we're seeing... Um, today, in the old days, I remember this. I'm trying to find some place. You got to go on MapQuest or one of these services, and then um, <laughs> you put the head unit in. It's like, wow, you got the GPS. Or if you didn't have that, you had the Garmin unit. It's like, okay, I lived in California. Then take me to In N Out Burger. And okay, we'd navigate you to In N Out Burger <laughs> if you wanted to go to your friend's house. No having to, well, go to the end of this street, take a right, no alone, take a left. You did it. Is That's that, right. Is that, if you take that analogy from the military and then eventually commercializing GPS for civilians, it's the same similar thing with GPR where you're going to have that really positive impact on society, similar to the way that GPS has had that positive impact on society? Yeah, that's a great point that you make, Grayson. So a lot of the core autonomous technology originated as defense applications, so LiDAR, GPS. You know, One could argue that some of the camera techniques and, and more high-flown camera applications did as well, a radar, of course. And so uh, it is analogous to that. The thing that I think is a little bit different is that the point of view that GPR is coming from is not replicating uh, human vision, which is what a LiDAR or a camera does. It's really coming from a totally different you know, paradigm, which is not how do we replicate how a human thinks, but actually what data isn't available to a human that you can leverage you know, for automotive safety. And so I think it's, you know, we're, we're treading the path that GPS did um, and that LiDAR has as well which is that you, know, you, you get that upfront investment to because it's really important to solve a critical military application. And then you say, aha, just like with uh, the space program, hey, there's actually a bunch of other applications for all of the stuff that we invented here and comes down the cost curve and, and all that good stuff. 
Another technology that came out of the military was platooning. And I had a friend that served in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, and this gentleman said, I, w- I wish we had autonomous vehicles for, for what we experience. So you, it, it's it really, everybody says autonomous vehicles are about safety, but if you put it in a the theater, it really truly is about safety and saving lives. And your technology is playing a critical role. Now, to level set, how would you describe ground positioning radar to a listener? says, okay, this is really interesting comparing and contrasting military to civilian, but how would you level set around your technology? Yeah, I think the simplest way to think about it is that each inch of road has a unique fingerprint underneath it. And so in the same way that if you know what my fingerprint looks like and then you scan, you have it in my fingerprint in a database and then you scan it, you know that it's my fingerprint. The same thing is true with a position on the road. So uh, I'm at point you know, zero, zero and I scan, uh, scan the road. The next time I drive over zero, zero, I'm gonna be able to match my current scan in that previous uh, in that previous image and say aha this is where the vehicle is to centimeter level accuracy and so what you're doing there is you're creating a set of subterranean images that's really just radar reflections off of things like changes in soil type or soil density roots rocks cavities rebar and so you're translating that into a 2d image and that set of images becomes the GPR map that you're then matching to again in, in a similar way that you might with a lidar based map Uh, or a camera-based map. The key difference here is that the subterranean imagery is ideal for positioning. It's very, very rich in detail, that's unique, and it's uh, it's static over long time periods. And so if you contrast that with a visual environment, which is sometimes you don't have landmarks like, you know, street lights or buildings or trees to begin with, if you do have them, they change sometimes or they can become obfuscated. Um, or occluded, uh, and and also sometimes things look the same. So like imagine you're in a parking garage and you've got a column in 10 meters, column in 10 meters, column in 10 meters. It's a very challenging uh, situation to deal with for a visual sensor. And so we sort of distilled the three main things for doing very accurate positioning. And it happens that the subterranean um, imagery is ideally suited for those. Rich in detail, we had a report that came out yesterday, National Geographic, that off the coast of Hawaii, they think they, they found the road to Atlantis, which we only reference we had to Atlantis is from the, rating, uh, the writings of Plato. And then if you look at throughout history, there's a lot of, if you go into Montana, there's dinosaur bones under the road, there's there's Native American burial sites, there's there's clay, there's all sorts of things throughout our history that are buried in the surface. Can your, So if your vehicle's going, I can actually see if there's artifacts underneath the ground, and then you can call the local... Um, artifact authorities and they can go and look at that? Yeah, it's a very it's a very good question. You can certainly flag points of interest, especially with deep learning. So you could say, you know, you could feed into the system, hey, this is what a, uh, you know, X type of ruin looks like, or, or generally this is what a ruin might look like, or this is what just a point of interest, something out of the ordinary might look like. Uh, and then the system could automatically recognize that as such rather than having to have someone kind of hand tailor it. So there is a, a really interesting application, not only for vehicle positioning, but you know we all kind of uh, become archeologists ourselves uh, as we're driving you know, our, uh, our passenger vehicles around and, and you have the potential to, to come upon certain uh, points of interest. So your customers can become Indiana Jones and they can uncover something. <laughs> <laughs> From a technical perspective, how can your radar penetrate the ground 
Yeah, it's a really uh, important question. So this has to do with the frequency setter that we're in, or the wavelength. So, you know, I like to compare it to a typical radar forward-facing on a vehicle that might be used for something like adaptive cruise control. That's a 77 gigahertz radar. And so what that means is a very short wavelength, and so things like ice, you know, if you get ice buildup on your sensors, everyone who lives in icy, icy areas will know this. Uh, wintry areas will know this. You know that that uh, it's too thick for the uh, for the radio waves to to get through and make sense of. We're in a much much lower frequency set, and so what that means is that the wavelengths are longer and they're able to penetrate through many many more types of things like that. And so that's why GPR uh, can go through things like snow or you know the road or anything like that. Uh, is because it's in that much longer wavelength, much lower frequency set. Um, so it's really a design point and a design choice uh, in terms of what you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it. Now, keep in mind, a forward-facing radar that we talked about is trying to go you know, very, very far out. We're really only trying to go about 10 feet you know, into the ground. And so while, it's, while there's sort of a, uh, an almost science fiction element to our product because we're mapping the subsurface, you know, we're actually not going nearly as far as some of the uh, traditional radar applications do. You, use the, you go 10 feet in the ground. Can you put this on, on maritime where you can map a channel and see what's below there? Because we have you see all the, the ships now with the ports and the, the ships are getting stuck because of the way that the tides are moving the rocks and the sand. Can you get into that? Um, you can't do you, so you can't really penetrate large volumes of water uh, with radar. That's one of the things that that's highly um, highly reflective. Um, so snow is a different story because of the structure of snow. Um, but water is uh, you know you, you couldn't like put this on a boat and, and map uh, map the seabed. Oh, maybe in the future, I think that you can develop something because maritime is a really interesting market that's exploding, especially uh, with the shipping. It's 101 days from the, the time a ship leaves APAC to it gets the, to the United States. We're down from 118, uh, the pandemic high, but then we're seeing stories where a ship runs aground. So somebody's going to figure that out. And I think that with your background coming out of Lincoln Laboratories, there's a good chance that you figure that out. The other interesting thing that I'm really excited about with ground positioning radar is safety. It seems that it, you can increase the safety. What is the safety case of ground penetrating radar? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and this is really kind of the bread and butter of why the automakers that we're working closely with and some of the AV leaders we're working closely with are adopting GPR. So, you know, to put it very, very simply, automated driving systems on passenger vehicles today are not very reliable. Think about the hands-free, you know, lane centering systems that exist out there that really depend on clear lane markings. And so when those don't exist, you know, in the best case, the feature turns off. In the worst case, you know, it gets confused um, and uh, and does something dangerous. Uh, and it's, you know, it's easy to scare a customer and it's really, really hard to unscare them. And so that's why you get a lot of folks that turn these, uh, turn these features off. And so the promise of GPR is that because you're using this domain that is stable and rich in detail and not subject to the whims and the dynamics of the surface, you have a much, much more robust experience. You can not rely on lane markings being present, or you don't have to see a very rich surface high definition map uh, that may or may not be occluded by things like snow or rain or fog or a, you know, Amazon Sprinter van that's driving by or whatever. And so it's really about building features that are expanded and what they can cover, these safety features, 
as well as introducing new features around like parking as well. So that's really kind of the safety case on the automaker side. On the autonomous vehicle side, so think like freight and robo-taxis, it's really about that sort of utilization, so a business model that really depends on having high high fare coverage or um, or high freight. You know, a lot of you have to be carrying freight uh, for the business model to work, the unit economics to work. And so we're empowering that by really kind of ensuring that, you know, if, a, if you're doing a hub-to-hub model, let's say for an autonomous truck, it can leave hub A and get to hub B without having to pull over um, you know, very often. Your company's based in, in, in Boston and you have the four seasons, you have snow, then you have the autumn where the leaves come down and they get sticky on the road. And then the winter you get the snow and then you go in the spring, you get the slush and you get not comfortable driving environments for just a regular human driver. Does your technology aid in that safety case from a, an ADAS perspective, but then also when you eventually get to autonomy where that vehicle can say, okay, the road's covered in leaves or it's covered in slush. It can still know where it's going. That's right. Yeah. So most of our work today is with you know the big OEMs targeting production vehicles, high volume production vehicles. So it's about that safety case for for ADAS, and the OEMs know that customers. The one thing that customers are willing to pay for um, is increased safety, and so safety is the bread and butter on the the ADAS side. On the AV side, again, it's really about like how do I move into big markets. How do I ensure that I can always take the most efficient trip, uh, you know, from point A to point B? You know, I the way that I like to think about it is, you know, if I got into an Uber at Boston Logan Airport, the middle of summer, and the driver told me he didn't know how to drive in rain or snow or fog, and it was a sunny day out, you know, I might I might have uh, I might not trust his overall competency, and and the bar is even higher for autonomous vehicles. You really need to earn the customer's trust. And I think that's part of the the value proposition, you know, on the robo taxi side, especially that that customers are working with us uh, for. You'd be totally nervous if you get off the Cape or off of Nantucket, you get a rainstorm that comes in, and the gentleman says, "I don't know how to drive in the rain." It's like, "Uh oh, <laughs> now what do I do?" <laughs> it's just a real world practical thing that you you have to solve for. And then that's when right. those, and then the, the, and if that gentleman knew how to drive or the Uber or somebody else, you have windshield wipers, so you the vehicle can see the headlights automatically go on due to sensors. Now, when you look at your sensors, so you and, and we mentioned slush, but you have um, the Northeast, you have a lot of dirt roads. If you go in the back country of Connecticut, for example, does your technology run into any hurdles around dirty sensors, either from salt on the roads, from dirt, or anything that the vehicle just over traditional wear and tear? Yeah, it's a really good question, especially because we're packaged underneath the vehicle. So, you know, you get a lot of dirt and mud and gravel. And so, you know, the the high level answer is that because of the nature of the product, that it's a radar and that we're using uh, a very long wavelength, you actually don't get issues with like salt buildup or ice buildup or mud buildup. You just sort of see through all of that. It's also, you know, it's not an optical sensor, so it's not like a a lens is getting occluded or anything like that. And of course, there's no mechanical parts, uh, you know, uh, and so it's you're able to really ruggedly package it um, underneath the vehicle. Okay, we're going to I'm sticking on this Northeast theme just be partially (laughs) because you're based there and and I grew up there. And they had old school car washes. The vehicle goes in and these things come up from nowhere and they all around the vehicle. Does that help your sensor? Does it have an issue with your sensor? How does that work? Uh, no no impact. So there's not, a, you know, if it gets sudsy or, you know, gets some jets of water or some other, uh, you know, cleaning solvents on there. You know, we put our, our product through all the traditional design validation 
um, that's required by automakers. Uh, remember, these have to be on the road for you know 12 to 15 years, and so you know it's a very hardened from that uh, from that perspective. You mentioned a lot that you're working with a lot of the large OEMs. Is that your primary market as you look to commercialize and scale GPR? It is, yeah. We've, we've seen you know a lot of pull, even from the early days, from these automakers that are really trying to expand their assisted driving feature set sort of into automated driving, you know, closer and closer to level three, let's call it. And so that's where a lot of the, uh, a lot of the work has been. The automakers view GPR as an enhancement to their current ADAS suite? They do, yeah. They they sort of view it as something that can make their products much much better and much much more robust. So as they translate that into, you know, what is the customer's willingness to pay? If you've got a assisted driving feature that you turn off, and I think the stats are something like seventy percent of drivers just you know shut off their ADAS um, features today. You know, you're able to really build a special experience for the customer and a safer experience for the customer. You're building a safer experience. You're in there with the global OEM. What's the value proposition that you present to that global OEM in your first meeting? Yeah, so the value proposition is really around building autonomous features when they're needed most. So again, back to the lane marking example. Every OEM is so familiar with this that you know you're tracking lane markings, uh, and that's a really problematic way to go about doing. Um, uh, doing lane keeping. And so you say, hey, if you relax that constraint, you can do so much more. You have such a better product uh, and a safer product, something that isn't going to get confused by, you know, old lane paint new versus new lane paint. Maybe there's an old exit that's not an exit anymore, but you still can see the lines going off. There's hundreds and hundreds and thousands of these, you know, so-called corner cases, which when you're driving at scale are, you know, happening every second of every day. Uh, you know, when you're driving, uh, you know, millions and millions of miles. And so it's really about that feature expansion. How do I make this this feature much better? Um, and then how do I introduce new features like autonomous parking? I'll give you an example. There was an, an OEM gave me a vehicle for a week as a, a part of the test fleet. And so I drove from where I lived in California up to Montecito. And this vehicle followed lane markings. I'm sitting there, doo, 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 and it starts taking me off the highway. <laughs> what the heck is going? Because because the lane marker turned to go off, but I had to keep going straight on the 101. Well, you're, that's a an edge case scenario. And then so I started calling around to other individuals I know that have this certain type of vehicle. Oh, it happens all the time. You just go one lane over and you avoid it. Is that a, an example of something that GPR could fix? That vehicle wouldn't go on the off ramp; it would keep going up the 101. It's a great example. Yeah, you know, you know that. You know, you're not reliant on just reacting to lane markings in real time. You say, I know this is where the lane goes, and so I'm able to then follow it. And I'm able to override the fact that, yeah, I, maybe I'm, maybe I, I, my algorithm weights the lane markings that are pulling me off the 101, you know, more for whatever reason. You can, you can say, aha, that's actually not correct. I should be staying, given where I'm going, uh, you know, I should be staying straight. You mentioned earlier automated parking. You're in a some of the subterranean garages, some two, three stories below ground. They're they're GPS denied. Is that another example where GPR comes in? So you drop it off on the first floor, and the vehicle goes. I call a home to go sleep. It finds a home to sleep three floors down. Is that? Do you pre-map that, or how does that work? That's exactly right. So you can map the garage, uh, you know, very quickly. Uh, and then you know, the application from an OEM perspective is, you know, you're going to a football game, let's say. Um, you're going to get out wherever you want to get out, um, and then the car is going to go park itself. 
uh, and then come and pick you up. An even better example maybe is you're going to the airport. So, you know, I go to Logan Airport here. I'm just going to get out at the JetBlue area. I walk into the terminal. car's going to go park itself. Uh, and then when I land if back a few days later, uh, you know, as I'm, as I'm disembarking, I'm going to page it, and it's going to come and pick me up. It changes the game because – because in the old old day, you're, you're running there. You're oh, oh, oh I gotta find a spot to park. I can't miss this, and then you end up. I've left cars at I left cars at the curb before. I don't. Know, it's a rental car. I gotta get off my plane. <laughs> you figure it out. You're you're but you're eliminating all that. And if you look at the travel experience, the number one thing has to be eliminated is the friction and the stress. So for perhaps you okay, you go there, you drop off, you go in, but then when you land, it, maybe perhaps it's already automated. It says okay. Tarek's landing at Logan at 7 p.m. Okay, on average, it takes 15 minutes to get from the uh, the plane to the curb, and your vehicle's there. This was a great experience. Yeah, and sometimes people can scratch their head, like, why is there such a focus on parking? But it's important to remember every drive begins and ends with parking. So, you know, there, there might be, you know, you might, you know, not encounter snow, you might not encounter fog, you might not encounter rain for long periods of a time, but you're going to leave a parking spot and park in a parking spot every single time you uh, you know you, you get into your car that's a great point my vehicle goes in the garage at the end of the day i go to the grocery store it sits in the parking lot and you're, <laughs> you're taking a complex issue and you're making it simple okay i never thought of that but wait a second you start thinking about your daily life that's how it works notoriously the automakers have long lead times some are seven eight eight years others are saying they can prototype in six months how are you working to get integrated into their production plans, knowing that this notoriously the industry is it's got that seven year get in queue, wait, away we go. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the product cycle in automotive is notorious, um, uh, as, you know, as you mentioned, and certainly a lot of startups have you know run aground on on the rocky uh, uh, the rocky seabed of it. You know, I think the way that we've approached it is that. We look for partners that we qualify as having high confidence that they're serious about adopting this, um, you know, down to specific vehicle platforms, that sort of thing, um, packaging requirements. Um, and then we target, you know, with them what the start of production is going to be. Uh, and then, you know, work with them to do all the traditional development uh, and evaluation to, to get up that curve. And so I think, you know, there's the, the product cycles being long are okay. As long as you're, you know, uh, because you know before that, you know well before the actual start of production if you're going to be on the vehicle or not. And so that's really the inflection point that you're going for, um, you know, that sort of purchase order, that production contract. And once you're through that, you're, uh, you know, you're kind of going through the, the validation process and scale up and tooling and all that uh, good stuff. And then you're a happy customer, no pun intended. That's right. I mean, the other side of the of the of the equation here, um, you know, yeah, you have to steep mountain to climb because of the long production, you know, the product development cycle, but it's very sticky as well. You know, once you're in the vehicle, you know, you're uh, it's not a sure thing, but you know, until there's a serious refresh of that vehicle, at least you're you know you're you're very likely to be in it year in and year out. And inside of the automotive market. There's a lot of markets. You mentioned the you mentioned the ADAS market, the autonomous market, but then there's a very large part portion of the population that likes to go off roading. They like to take the vehicles off. They buy the SUV or they they buy the pickup truck. Some people modify it on the secondary markets. Is there a benefit to your technology in the off road markets? Yeah, I'm glad you asked about that. Uh, there is, and it's such a big part of the North American market in particular. You know, I think about how like the F-150 or the Ram is marketed. I think of those, te- those television advertisements. Those are all 
you know, sort of serious off-road, uh, off-road use. And so in the work we've been doing with some of the North American OEMs uh, or OEMs that have, you know, pickup and SUV lines uh, here in the U.S., you know, this has been an area of focus because it's such a strong affinity group, um, you know, within sort of uh, the population. So um, what's challenging about an off-road environment is that the typical surface sensors are really rendered nearly useless. It's really hard to make them effective for all the reasons that we've sort of discussed already. Um, and so with GPR, you're able to do things like create, let me sort of paint the product vision that some of our partners have. You're able to kind of almost do like a Strava for off-road. So you create a, a, a route, you're able to share that with your friends, you're able to follow people whose off-road routes you like. The, the vehicle comes uh, factory loaded with very popular off-road destinations. So think about like Moab, for instance. Um, as an example. And then you're also able to do things like folks that own large parcels of land are able to basically create like off-road maps on them as well. So think about how, you know, as you think about how does the how does the software-defined vehicle open up new revenue streams for the customer and the OEM, that, that's sort of an example as well. You're building community. You can look at so, like Nike Run community. You have the different various Apple communities. You're building a community. Exactly, exactly. And that makes it very sticky. You know, if I'm a, if I am a uh, CEO of an OEM, I say, how do I make these high margin pickup trucks as sticky as possible uh, so that I'm always buying an F-150 or I'm always buying the Ram or always buying the Silverado or what have you. And that, that's a pretty interesting way to do it. Because you went from selling rubber and steel to having a service model where you want, oh, I got to get that F-150 to ensure that I'm in this community because it has this technology. Then you got a recurring buyer buying the vehicle, but then more importantly, as we're seeing all the global OEMs, you have a recurring revenue stream. If it's nine ninety nine a month or whatever the thing might be, now you've got this very sticky customer. I mean, for the investors, that is a very powerful model to get there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it used to be—I forget what the adage was—but you know, the moment you drove your car off the lot, it lost like twenty percent of value or something like that. Now, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a tug of war because the vehicles are getting better with time as well as more and more sort of over the air, um, you know, updates are being made and more product development is happening. And so, you know, it's a pretty interesting kind of brave new world out there. Over the air updates have completely changed the way automotive has been done and it will change it in the future. And, and you look at, if you want to go back in history, and I'm going to stick with this Boston Northeast theme here. In the olden days, there were no snow plows that went around Boston or the suburbs uh, around Boston inside of Massachusetts. And along comes the invention of the snow plows. They're great. They move the stuff, but boy, that moves a lot of snow and it goes all over the place. And sometimes the roads are messy. Could your technology in theory be retrofitted for snow plows so it doesn't hit a, um, there's incidents where we pull something up from the ground and then all of a sudden the sewer cap opened up or it hits something. Can properly define the snowplow so it's not going to cause and damage yeah you know it's funny uh it's funny you raise this so one of the suburb cities uh suburban cities uh outside of boston rang us up because of this exactly on snowplows which is that you know the plows can cause when you can't see the road edges basically they can cause enormous damage right they're just like they split up curbs you know, residents become unhappy. Hey, like this curb has been um, has been busted up for the last six months, Mr. Mayor. And so, you know, they're really trying to minimize that cost and sort of resident discontent. Uh, and so it's, it's not an application we've actively pursued, but it's something that I think there's there's a lot of interest around. And there's a lot of federal and state dollars for it. That's right. <laughs> 
outside of the automotive industry, what other industries could benefit from GPR's technology? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, there's automation happening across all sorts of industrial sectors. So I'll just, you know, use mining as an example. Mines are in, you know, far-flung places, typically unpleasant environments to work in and live in. And so, and vehicle utilization is, is very, very important. So as you think about, you know, what vehicles, what applications have a lot of uh, upside from automation, um, you know, mining as an example, or agriculture is another one, are, are good ones. But those are hard environments to do automation, visual-based automation in because of all the reasons we said. I mean, like imagine a mine, everything is shifting all the time visually. It's kind of like a port. You just have containers moving around all the time, which is another application. And so there, there's sort of this broad swath of industrial applications, airside operations at an airport uh, is another one, that you know we're having active dialogues with and in some cases working with to put GPR on it to kind of help them them solve some of the localization or positioning challenges that they have. It's it's amazing. I've had five or six conversations this week with one common denominator, which you mentioned, mining. It used to be two years ago, the same thing, pattern would happen, robo-taxi, robo-taxi. Now it's mining, mining, mining. Mining is becoming, I would call it the hottest avenue in autonomy. Everybody's chasing Rio Tinto, BHP built-in, and they see they see a lot of revenue, a lot of profitability, but also an opportunity. That's going to be real interesting to see how the mining market evolves over the next decade. And in your opinion, how do you see the radar market evolving over the next decade? Yeah, it's a great question. So, like, if I think of radar broadly, you know, you've got some really interesting work happening on like imaging radar or you know what's called 4G radar on the autonomy side mostly, and so that could be, you know, something that really tries to put radar into a resolution class closer to like a camera for instance um, and so that's sort of an interesting development on the gpr front you know we're we sort of view our our business and our product as kind of like as if a single company uh, was responsible for like the gps ecosystem so we're building this subterranean data set and a bunch of different applications are going to be built on it and so we expect this to be really an explosive growth you know over the next decade or, or so um, because we're, you know, because we're thinking differently about the problem, and we're solving a really, really unmet need right now, which is how do you know exactly where you are at all times? You have to know where you are, otherwise you're lost. And then we're going to start playing the game in real life. Where's Waldo? That's what it's going to come down <laughs> to if you don't know where you are. But yeah, putting this conversation into context, what is the future of GPR? Yeah, so GPR will become a ubiquitous, um, you know, safety technology. I almost think of it less as like a analog to LiDAR or camera, uh, which of course people are, are want to make, and more like a seatbelt or anti-lock brakes or an airbag, something that is a standard that is required on all vehicles, and you kind of don't even think about it, uh, but you don't want to imagine a world without it. And so that's really where we're driving the product and where the OEMs we're working with are driving a product, which is that this is, you know, if we're going to, if the the product, the automotive product is going to continue to progress both in performance and safety, you know, GPR is an essential um, element of that. Standards change the world. I'm reading this really fascinating book on Henry Ford and Thomas Edison. They call themselves the Vagabonds. And they went around these 10 years and, and going doing these road trips. And during those road trips, Henry Ford was driving on the left-hand side of the vehicle. And 
And Thomas Edison kept pro. Why? Well, why? Well, the ladies have to get out on the curb. This is when curves started getting. So then the vehicle became the standard on the left-hand side. So ladies could get on the curb and not get mud. It was just this interesting thing when uh, Thomas Edison and Henry Ford were going around that developed a standard. And SAE, through the committees, does a wonderful job of developing standards. For anybody listening, if you're interested, I'd highly recommend that you join the committees and, and help build the standards. Because Tarek is right. Standards are going to define the future they are going to change the world as we saw that with henry ford and thomas edison and Tark. as we look to wrap up this super insightful conversation what would you like our listeners to take away with them yeah i mean i think the the core thing to take away from gpr is that in order to build sort of superhuman safety superhuman autonomy we've really got to think about the problem from a superhuman perspective so moving away from just really replicating how a human views the world, you know, human vision, and toward a paradigm where you're saying, what's all of the data that's available to me? How can I leverage that to really build an incredible product? And that that thinking differently is what's driven us and it sort of animated the GPR mission from day one. Um, And it served us well, you know, as we we work with automakers and, and autonomous companies. Super human safety is something that every company working on an automotive technology should strive for because today is tomorrow, tomorrow is today, and the future is ground positioning radar. Tarek, thank you so much for coming on SAE Tomorrow Today. Thanks for having me. Really fun to be here. Thank you for listening to SAE Tomorrow Today. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please kindly rate, review, and let us know what topics you'd like for us to explore next. Be sure to join us next week as I speak with the founder and CEO, Wabi. She'll talk about how Wabi World, a high-fidelity closed-loop simulator, is the key to unlocking the potential of self-driving technology. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.